This is Ed Marsh, and you're listening to The Optical. Welcome to Episode 5 of The Optical. As ever, we're going back through the very first issues of Cinefax magazine from the early 1980s and using that as a framework to talk about the films and the effects that they covered in the magazine, uh, as well as some extra bonus stuff. As always, we thank Cinefax for access to these early out-of-print issues, uh, which you can actually now get your hands on because they are in the Cinefax Classic portion of their iPad app. All of the back issues are now available in digital form. If you have an iPad, I really encourage you to check it out because it's a pretty amazing resource. Also wanted to take a moment just to congratulate Cinefix on their 35th anniversary event that they held recently in L.A. It was the Celebrating Cinefix event, and I was lucky enough to make it down there for that and had a lovely evening listening to stories of how the magazine was created and what they've been through over the years with publisher Don Shea and editor-in-chief Jody Duncan, hosted by Craig Barron. I believe the Visual Effects Society there in L.A. recorded a video, and eventually they'll post that to the web. But as soon as they do, we'll post it to the blog at OpticalPodcast.com, where you'll also find full show notes, videos, links, and other cool stuff. And you can also follow along on Facebook or Twitter at Optical Podcast. Stay tuned later in the episode for your chance to win a free one-year print subscription to Cinefix Magazine. In issue five, they had an article on Clash of the Titans, Ray Harryhausen, Roy Arbogast, and Caveman. But we're also going to talk to Ed Marsh, who did some work related to Ardman Animation Studios a while back, and also was involved with the first use of Jim Cameron's 3D systems and has gone on to be a 3D stereo supervisor on a number of films after that. We have a good discussion about the current state of 3D in the film industry. But first, let's talk about Clash of the Titans and Ray Harryhausen. So here with me to talk about Ray Harryhausen is my friend and Ray Harryhausen fan, Jose Vasquez. Hey, hello. How hola. are you doing, Jose? I'm doing great. Good. Uh, you, you were telling me that uh, you're, you're a fan of Harryhausen movies, but you didn't realize you were a fan of Harryhausen yes, movies? Yes, kind of, sort of. Um, How does that work? Well, let's see. We're, we're going to talk about a... Um, Clash of the Titans, obviously, and Clash of the Titans came out in 1981 when I mm-hmm. was nine years old, and I was completely gobsmacked by it. <laughs> but I grew up in Central America and Honduras, and on TV I would watch a lot of Harryhausen movies, but I never knew the name Harryhausen, and I actually huh. never realized that they were related. So I, I remember watching a, a bunch of the the Sinbad movies. Mm-hmm. And they were like at odd hours in TV and dubbed in Spanish with commercials in the middle. <laughs> and, you know, a lot of the times I don't think they even play to the conclusion. So I would just see like <laughs> snippets of, you know, somebody is fighting against the vulture or something. Uh-huh. It, I never actually it wasn't until we I started preparing for this podcast that I realized, you know, who Ray Harryhausen was mm-hmm. and that he is the same person who did all of those films and basically culminated in. in a, Clash of the Titans. Right. So, yes, I guess I am. I've been a fan. I just unwittingly, I've been a fan of Ray Harryhausen. Huh. So the funny thing is, and and I am completely ashamed to say this, is that aside from maybe one or two of them, 
I like, I totally knew who Harry Wahausen was, how, like how great everyone thinks he is and how amazing his work is. And I had only seen maybe one or two of his movies before we uh, started research for this episode. And I've gone back and like tried to watch a few more of them since, but I, I feel really bad that I have this giant hole in my film knowledge. That well, it's kind of an odd thing, right? Because it's when they came out, they were like the state of the art mm-hmm. in, in visual effects and, you know, and this kind of genre. Mm-hmm. Obviously, if you were around and you were of a certain age, you would flock to see them and they would like be recorded in your in your brain. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. 20 years after that, it's like, why would you watch this? I mean, there's all these other new movies. Don't get me wrong. I actually think there's there are good reasons to watch it, but it's not natural to just go back, you know, and hunt down old movies and just watch them for the sake of it. Oh, well, I I do that. But (laughs) (laughs) but yeah, I'm surprised I never saw it. When I was a kid, there was a bonus feature on one of the DVDs, I think the Jason the Argonauts or the Blu-ray, where they had all of these people who are like huge figures in visual effects now who like all go back and say Seventh Voyage is Sinbad is the thing that got me into visual yes. effects. And yeah, you see that at that young impressionable age, you're like, holy cow, this is amazing. How does he do this? Let me figure yes. it out and maybe I'll do it too. And it's kind of crazy that I didn't I never saw it as a kid. I saw like, you know, Star Wars and Star Trek and stuff, but never, never that. I guess my parents weren't into <laughs> Greek. Myths. Yeah, and, and I think like, I mean, the some of the Simbad movies and the Jason movies mm-hmm. were a little bit before our time. You know, you, you and I are roughly the same age. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I was just starting to go to the movies when Clash of the Titans came out. Mm. So, you know, it's, I couldn't have gone that much farther back. And some of them, were, I think, were released before I was even born. Yeah. And, and this is also a time when there was no cable when I was a kid. So it's not like there was that many reruns. And definitely the Betamax video rental store was new. <laughs> and they didn't yeah. have like quite the selection. Right. So there, I can see how it's easy to like have that big gap, even though it's sitting right next to you. Is You know, you're so close. And yet, <laughs> <laughs> you know, you just missed it yeah I, I guess that's the same for me too i probably didn't really start going to movies until 82 or so i mean aside from maybe one or two like i think my mom took me at a bambi and some uh, reprise of song of the south when i was real little but i remember going to see et because i remember like when i saw et cold and gray in the ditch and i was like crying on my dad's shoulder i remember <laughs> that vividly it's <laughs> like the first movie memory that i have that i know oh no really happened <laughs> I'm trying. I'm actually going back and trying to see when most of these movies came out. Well, let's let's go through it. It's, he started doing his own little stuff. Uh, like he was inspired by King Kong. So Ray, Ray Harry Harrelson grew up watching some of the stuff that Willis O'Brien. Willis O'Brien being the forefather of animation and movies, right? Well, as far as the stop motion stuff, yeah, I saw stop motion. Yep. Yeah, yeah, yep. sorry. Did the original King Kong? Uh, Ray Harryhausen must have been. Well, like 12 or 13 when he first saw that. I think it's in the in the magazine where he would take his bike down to the cinema to watch. Right. And then he was working on this um, film that he was calling Evolution that never quite got finished. But it was trying to show the evolution of creatures in prehistoric times and having dinosaurs fighting. And there's a little caveman. and With some astounding support from, him, from his parents, by the way. Yeah. His, um, <laughs> his dad made the armatures for him. Like, the OK, so stop motion. Yes, yes. So this whole episode is about stop motion, pretty much. Pretty much, yeah. So you've got, essentially, it's a metal skeleton 
that goes inside the character, it's little ball and socket joints. And then for most of his stuff, he put it inside a mold that was created from a sculpture that he'd made. And then that mold is filled with foam rubber and baked in an oven and the rubber cures. So you get this foam rubber on top of the metal skeleton. So you can have this kind of rigid thing inside that you can move a little bit and then it stands still. But then it has the sculpted exterior. So that's what most of them use. You know, you like you move it a little bit, take another frame, move it a little bit, take another frame. (laughs) I remember seeing these movies as a kid Mm -hmm. and being completely blown away by it. But also, like, I guess we're already at an age where we don't just buy it. Mm -hmm. I completely suspended disbelief and I completely enjoyed the movie as if it were real. Right. But in the back of my mind, I always knew that it wasn't real. Right. And you could tell to some extent these are little puppets that are being moved. Sure. It did not take away anything from the movie at all. So I I always kind of knew like, oh, I know what they're doing. But there were some things that I remember watching way back when. Whereas like, wait a minute, I think I know how they did that. But (laughs) how did they do that? Yeah. I remember I I was always into playing with clay and making models of clay myself. Mm -hmm. To me, the concept was pretty simple, right? I make a a model of clay, take a picture of it, change it a little bit, take another picture of it and Mm -hmm. and so on and so forth. Mm -hmm. It never occurred to me that they weren't working with clay, that they made the original models of clay, but then they like cast them into rubber Mm -hmm. and that they had the armature that you're talking about, the metal skeleton that actually holds them into place. And that makes oh so much more sense because when you're doing it with, you know, and and you can do what they call claymation. Right. But it's such a different look. Yeah, it's kind of a more fluid look. It it, it makes so much more sense now. Yeah. That I, I read about it. And the other one that like, always baffled me and I, I remember this vividly uh, watching one of the Simbad movies mm. they have a lot of fights with skeletons right and skeletons just baffled me because I could un- I can understand how you could make a clay skeleton but animate it mm-hmm. you know it's <laughs> like th- this cannot be <laughs> I, I remember as as a kid I came to the conclusion that this must have been like marionettes Mm. Or like they were tied to to strings from above and they were like changing them. Right. I kind of like put my mind at ease saying like, yes. Oh, I'm sure that's how they did it. <laughs> <laughs> but, but it turns out like, no, not at all. The, the funny thing is once I saw that, I mean, I knew how the armatures worked on most of the characters. But yeah, looking at the skeletons, it's like. Oh my gosh, how did they, I mean, you can't really hide bones inside of bones. It's exactly. already, <laughs> it's already bones. and It's, it's bony. <laughs> yeah, apparently his dad made these really tiny ball and socket joints to go on the ends and they covered yeah. over them with a, I think it was like latex mixed with bits of cotton ball <laughs> that, correct, that correct, actually yeah. became the, the exterior skin for the skeletons. I mean, just amazing stuff. The, the interesting thing about it too is that because they were not made of rubber, mm. they actually apparently have stood the test of time better they've degraded more gracefully over the years oh yeah so at least in some of the specials that i saw many years later they still had the skeletons and they could still show off how they did that where a lot of the older uh, foam creatures have just kind of the foam is disintegrated and correct started correct. to rot so he started doing his own stuff i believe it was in a high school science fiction club that he met Ray Bradbury, who was his, mm-hmm. his yes. age, and they became friends, like lifelong friends. Ray Bradbury eventually presented the Lifetime Achievement Oscar that he got yes. decades later. For George Powell, the guy who produced the original War of the Worlds movie, I might add, made <laughs> these uh, puppetoons 
little cartoons, but with the stop motion characters. Stopped for a little while during World War II. He was in the army, but then he was making little animated army training films. Yes. And then he found a bunch of Kodachrome film that the Navy had thrown away. And he just like scooped it up and <laughs> got it back to his house. And after the war, he was working on these Mother Goose stories, just kind of producing them on his own, not uh, knowing who he was going to sell them to or anything. Um, I think they eventually did get aired somewhere, but I, I couldn't quite figure out where. Yeah, I don't I don't remember. I, I read it. He was working on the 12th one of those when he finally got a call from Willis O'Brien to come help him work on Mighty Joe Young, which is the first feature mm-hmm. that he worked on. So let's let's go through this list. There's Mighty Joe Young in 1949, The Beast from 20,000 Fathoms in 1953. It came from beneath the sea in 1955. Earth versus the Flying Saucers in 1956. The Animal World, which is kind of like this dinosaur intro to this nature film. Yeah. Also in 1956. 20 Million Miles to Earth in 1957. The Seventh Voice of Sinbad in 1958. 58, yeah, way before. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the Three Worlds of Gulliver in 1960, which didn't have that much stop motion in it. It was more like film compositing effects in that one. Yeah, but it was mixing of, of different sizes, right? Like right. that was the, the technical achievement. Right. Mysterious Island in 1961, based on Jules Verne's story. Jason and the Argonauts in 1963, which I'm sure we'll come back to. First Man in the Moon in 1964, an H.G. Wells story. One Million Years B.C. in 1966, with a little tiny animated Raquel Welch. Uh, <laughs> the, the Valley of Guanji in 1969, The Golden Voyage of Sinbad 1973, Sinbad and the Eye of the Tiger in 1977, and his 16th film and final film in 1981, Clash of the Titans. That's quite the resume. <laughs> and the amazing thing is on most of those from, I think it was, it came from Beneath the Sea, where he first started working with Charles Schneer. He was the producer on the film. And he became his producing partner for a long, long time, all the way to the end. To Clash of the Titans, yeah. Yeah. Even though he was just billed as the effects creator in most of these films, he, along with Charles Schneer, were really the creative impetus behind all of them. I mean, they, you know, hired somebody to direct it. But he, like, at least wrote the outlines for most of the stories and would come in and actually direct the scenes that were going to have animated creatures put in them. Stop animation. Yeah. Just an amazing array of work. It really is daunting. (laughs) And I'm almost surprised that it stopped at Clash of the Titans. It feels like he finally got to this point where it was like well-funded compared to the others. And it had like big name actors and everything. And then I kind of wonder whether it was, I mean, there had been some big name actors on a couple of the other ones, but not huge, like, you know, Laurence Olivier. And yeah, but there's like, I wonder since it was also the first film on which he really had assistance and he didn't do everything himself if you kind of figured uh maybe (laughs) i don't want to like it's been done be a manager (laughs) i want to actually do this stuff you know and that was yeah and 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 reading the article it really does feel like the man worked himself to death i mean yeah he was doing everything he was like scouting locations and putting the puppets in place and repairing the cameras and like 
everything. Mm. Maybe he just burnt out, I guess. And it was, I guess, getting antiquated as far as the techniques at that point. Other visual effects things were kind of coming in and becoming more popular. That's, yeah, that's true. And and he was clearly deeply entrenched in his ways of doing things and he didn't want to change anything. <laughs> right. Like he didn't want to change the cameras. Even the cameras right. were like he had the cameras that he got from Willie's O'Brien's uh, that production company. And he used that camera for years and years and years. Yeah. And yeah. He just kept repairing. And, you know, it was it's a camera. Mitchell. Yeah. Stroll number 15. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but it's a shame, I think. As a kid, I love Clash of the Titans. Yeah. It's it's one of those movies that even today I see it and I forgive so many of its sins just because, <laughs> you know, it's just ingrained as a childhood memory and I just revert to a childlike admiration to it. Mm. The fact of the matter is, it's really well done. I mean, considering how it's being done and everything, I'm still blown away by, by the level of, of artistry that it takes to do some of these things. What's the one piece of this film that really is seared in your memory? I, re- I remember seeing the the skeleton fights and the skeleton fights sure. was just amazing. And it's one of those things that just stumps you. How how did they do this? Oh, that fight in Jason it, and the Argonauts is am- incredible. astounding. And, and even before, like the, the simplest one, the very first one in uh, Seventh uh, Voyage of Sinbad, mm-hmm. the fact that he's like orchestrating the blows, right? Sinbad raises his shield and the skeleton hits the, the shield with his sword. Mm-hmm. And they're not happy happening really at the same time and right because they would go through and and actually have like a stunt performer in there taking the place of the skeleton for rehearsals and then they'd go through and do the real take and he he would just have to right. mimic being hit and they, would, and they would they would use a choreographer to like do the whole fight sequence mm-hmm. and they had beats to it so I, I don't know if they actually were like somebody was counting one two three four but like hmm. they had a sequence a, a way of timing when the blows happened so that when they were animating it, they had a notion of time of when right. the blow had to hit here or there. <laughs> I have to get the skeleton over to this point by this frame. <laughs> exactly. It's just when I first saw this, I wasn't really thinking of what's going on behind the scenes. But behind the scenes, you have real of film that you can't really see what's going on. You just like press the button and hope that the picture is taken. <laughs> Nowadays, I'm... I'm I'm baffled by how we could take pictures back when, you know, we're using film cameras. So they've just got the viewfinder and that's it. Yeah. They have to trust that they've been animating things in the right direction and actually been going at the speed they want to go. There's no like video assist so they can play back the frame so far. How far should the motion of this hand be? It's Mm -hmm. like it's all in the gut feeling. It's like the the instinct of, of these incredible artists. When it gets even more technically complicated, like you're saying in Jason Art of the Argonauts, where you have seven of these skeletons fighting at the same time, right. you have to remember in which direction each hand is moving. And the, sh- the shoulder going slightly to the left for this one, but not for that one. This one is stepping back and that one is f- stepping forward. Uh, it's just crazy amount of stuff. And he would just keep track of it in his head. And yeah. <laughs> I mean, like, I just, just going to the restroom, you know, like, <laughs> how do you remember like, where all these things in, are going? He said in one of the interviews, like when the, when he was animating the uh, seven headed Hydra, the Hydra, yes. And Jason, the Argonauts, he would be animating and like kind of in the groove. And then the phone would ring, you know, somebody from the studio wanted to talk or whatever. And he had had to answer the phone <sighs> and then he'd come back to it. And he's like. Uh, okay, so that's probably where, you know, this head that was going forward jerks backward for a moment because <laughs> yeah. I forgot which way it was going. 
How does he keep all that in his yes, head? That, that's seriously a, a kind of a task that you have to isolate from the rest of the world. Like unplug the phones. And, <laughs> you know, like, I'm not here. In Clash of the Titans, they have this shorthand, I guess, for how the gods interact with humans, which I love. Right. They oh, have this little coliseum. Little clay figures. And, and clay figures. And, you know, the gods can actually grab the people and crush them or change them or move them. And, and you know. Right. So when Zeus decides to punish Calibus, right, he places him in the Colosseum and dooms him to be transformed into this this horrible disfigured creature. Right. The animation that actually does that just blows my mind. Mm. The camera has a wide angle and it's looking at the the whole interior of the Colosseum, and then the camera tightens not on the piece but on the shadow that it's casting. Right. And then you slowly see this animation of the shadow morphing from a human silhouette. It morphs into this monster, but it does so in such an expressive way where like the creature is clearly suffering in the process. And like he puts his hands on his head and the shape of his hands kind of starts becoming the the, the horns, the horns. Mm-hmm. And he like hunches over in agony. And then when he tries to straighten up, he doesn't straighten up anymore as, as he did, because now he's this creature that has a long tail and, and, and this whole thing. But that animation is happening on the shadow so right you have the first shadow and you have the end shadow and then you get a version of the coliseum with no shadow and they then they'll do the cell animation on top of that in between those two okay so you just burst my bubble then i'm not impressed (laughs) (laughs) no it's so great it's just a great piece of artistry i there's It, it really is i thought artistically it was very very expressive mm-hmm. you know i think all of his creatures are to varying degrees but there's like so many of his creatures that are you know monstrous but you can kind of see them thinking they're just mm-hmm. you know they, they've got that quality of, of character about them that clearly the best one for that is talos i think it's called eh, from is it jason and the arconauts yeah the statue yeah that's amazing because it, it's a statue <laughs> it has no feelings it has no motion it's like his face is just blank i don't think his face ever changes throughout the animation but you can see the the thought going through and in his motion and when jason figures out to like unscrew his heel his mm-hmm. achilles heel if you will and you know he <laughs> drains out all of his whatever is giving him life the oil of life or whatever yeah, i think he's steam powered he, i guess right yeah as, as, <laughs> as he's losing all his steam <laughs> Talos starts like doing this choking motion. Yeah. Why is, does that even make sense? But it's conveying this, <laughs> this like, you know, agony of like, oh no, I'm dying over here. <laughs> if anything, he should be putting his thumb in his ankle and trying to like stop the leakage. <laughs> there's, a, there's not a lot of variation necessarily in the techniques that were used, even like in Clash of the Titans or any of his other films for that matter. But there was miniature work of the destruction of the city of Argos, which is fun to see because they're like, okay, cool. We finally have money to do like high speed cameras that they were running at like 96 frames per second. So then they could slow it back down to 24 and give you that cool slow motion that kind of gives the weight to the miniature. Yeah, the water. <laughs> yeah, he, he brings up water and weight and speed a couple mm-hmm. of times and how it's the problem with water that water wants to behave like water. It doesn't care what size you're pretending it to be. Right. 
it's so really like, hard to miniaturize. Yeah. Even now, if they do any sort of water, it's either computer generated water. So it looks the right size or they're, you know, building an enormous miniature like uh, James Cameron did on Titanic. And even when they're doing like animation, you have to have different algorithms altogether, depending on what type of water you have. Mm hmm. It's not the same to like splash some water on some ants that it is to like, you know, <laughs> have the Titanic floating in the ocean. Right. I think it was funny because he mentioned specifically that in Earth versus the Flying Saucers, they didn't have the money for a high speed camera. And he hand animated, like stop motion animated the destruction of the buildings. When a flying saucer crashes into the Washington Monument, each brick that was falling had to be hung from a separate wire and animated frame by frame. Instead, crazy. <laughs> it was crazy, like, crazy stuff. I wish we could have just, you know done at high speed and just like crashed something and be done with it. But no, <laughs> have to take three weeks to animate this by hand. The amount of time it takes for this stuff is constantly striking me. Like even though today's special effects production still takes a long time and we're doing even more and more detailed stuff. But back then it was like astounding lengths of time for stuff that we can do in yeah. an afternoon now. I'm playing around doing some stop animation at home just to play around with it. Yeah. And uh, there's some amazing apps nowadays on for iPads and iPhones and, and mm. all these digital devices. Mm -hmm. One of them, I stop motion. Oh, from Boinks? Yes. There's an iPad app and it allows you to like take pictures frame by frame and, you know, put them all together. But mm -hmm. the really cool trick that it has up its sleeve is that there's a free version that runs on the iPhone mm. and you can set up the iPhone as a camera and control everything from the iPad. <laughs> oh, wow. So you can put the iPhone in, in a tripod little thingy or whatever, or hang it from some spot or, you know, do whatever it is that you want to do with it. Mm -hmm. And then you can be taking the pictures and reviewing them and, 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 and interacting with everything on the iPad. And as soon as you take a picture, the iPhone is transmitting the picture to the iPad. Hmm. So you have instant feedback and you're not touching the iPhone itself, which would move your camera. It's actually transmitting it in real time. Hmm. So you can be moving your figures, be it clay or animating oranges on your kitchen. Not right. that I've done that. <laughs> so you, not only can you like see it, but you can also place the previous image on top of it with a degree of transparency. So oh. you're kind of like onion skinning Right. Thing in real time so as you're moving it you can tell like exactly how much it's it's, it's moved that's super cool <laughs> and it's so fast i mean with zero experience obviously you're doing something crappy and but <laughs> it's so easy to get the the mechanics of it i would yeah. love to see what someone with more talent like that could do on a, on a picture nowadays there's still people that are doing that kind of stuff now i mean like james and the giant peach and Coraline and uh, yeah yeah no there's definitely an, you know, but that's for you know when when the entire world is like that right it's, it's a kind of like a, a stylized oh but, i see what you mean but not but not doing it as a special effect inside a live action movie exactly exactly you you couldn't do like a, a greek mythology piece oh no and with this anymore you know you, they remade it with cgi recently too so i thought it was fun obviously the creatures are are way more realistic and and you know the detail yeah water being animated <laughs> poseidon the kraken everything is just like yeah of a larger scale both are just as realistic in my mind Hmm. If, if if not more so the older ones thanks to netflix i've been watching way more comic book uh, <laughs> series than i should or okay. at least somebody of my age should be watching <laughs> but it's, it's interesting because you get to compare and contrast styles mm. to make it like very very obvious what i'm trying to tell 
Do you remember animations of He-Man back in the 80s? Sure. They were like the drawings were like, I'm not going to say realistic, but they were kind of realistic. They were like, you know, well-drawn images. Yeah. And the motions were fairly fluid motions. Mm. And actually, I I remember them as standing out as being fluid. But the problem was they only had like three walk sequences. You know, and right. there's like there was the jump sequence, there was the the turnaround sequence, there was the um shock sequence, right? And they had those exact same sequences drawn for every character, and every single show was just like a mix up of those same sequences. Mm. Therefore, everything was really rigid. Now, if you saw He Man walking, that one particular walk out of context, yes, it was a good animation, I think. Mm. But it was because they took care and they spent time doing that one sequence and then they just recycled it to death. Right. And you see the the more modern drawings. And I'm going to use uh, the Justice League ones as an example. Bruce Tim stuff. I'll trust you on that. Yeah. The style of the drawings has been simplified considerably, has been stylized. And it's almost like they say, what's the fewest number of lines that I need to draw Superman? Mm-hmm. Right. And you recognize every time that you see that that's Superman and Batman and, you know, like whatever. Right. But because they're so simple, their motions are very fluid, but they're also completely custom every time. Mm. In my mind, once I'm, you know, once I watched it and I'm reviewing that in my head, it's completely fluid as opposed to like a He-Man episode where like they're all like one episode that never ends and <laughs> super boring. Right? Like, you, does that make any sense? So you feel like the, the ex- there's there's a lot of expressiveness that can be put into motion of things. Mm-hmm. If you fast forward a little bit more and you go and look at Young Justice, which is a, an even newer series, it has even better drawing than Justice League, in my opinion. And it mm-hmm. also has better animation. So it has better of both. Hmm. Again, this is my opinion. Like I'm not a, sure. an artisan, or you know, you don't have to apologize for having an opinion. My only qualification is that I watch them a lot. <laughs> Ray Harryhausen had so much experience animating these things; mm-hmm. he could put a lot of emotion into like everything. The frustration of a cyclops as he's fighting a dragon or whatever, you know, it's uh-huh. you see the emotion, you see the tension there. And going back to what you were saying about you know having it be an effect in a live action movie, there's. I'm surprised at how well it works as far as, you know, integrating the live action with the animation, just like the fight with Calabas and Perseus. Incredible. They're essentially wrestling in the swamp and Perseus, uh, Harry Hamlin, he's filmed there by himself wrestling with nothing. (laughs) And then, you know, I mean, they did have the stunt person stand in for the rehearsals, but then he's got nothing there to work with. He's wrestling with himself. And then there's the animated Calabas in there. And it really looks like they're going at it. Yeah. One of the things that I remember this as a kid, Mm. I completely believed that Pegasus was a real horse (laughs) that they had stuck somehow animated wings on him. Yeah. And even today, I find it hard to believe that that is an animated horse, but yes, now I can see it. Now I can see like the, the hair is, is a little bit out of scale. There's yeah. there's one or two shots where it is a real horse and they've animated in exactly wings, and the, and that's that's the beauty of it. It's like where enough to sell it back and forth. It lends authenticity to it. Like you know, I saw his face. It was a real horse. <laughs> <laughs> and that was one thing I thought was interesting about the wings that Harry hasn't said that all of the drawings he saw of Pegasus was 
with like this horse, but with these little tiny wings on its mm-hmm. side. And he was disappointed with that. And he's like, no, that's not going to carry a horse. So he designed it with these huge wings. And I've like in popular culture, never seen anything but the large winged horse. And I'm wondering if it's just because at that point in my childhood, that's when it came out and really uh, affected popular culture in that way and say, oh, let's draw Pegasus yeah. this way from now on. Right. When did Fantasia come out? Um, 1940. Oh, was it that early? Oh. Yeah, yeah. Fantasia is old. Oh, that's right. Because he was working on that evolution thing. And, and uh, that's why he gave that up. Because he saw the dinosaur sequence in Fantasia. And was like, that's oh, right. they did that better than I ever could. So he like, right. put it aside. I think their wings were bigger. Oh, were they? Okay. The whole thing about it, like galloping through the sky, I thought was interesting as well. That yes, it wasn't just... Like, you know, let's tuck our legs underneath and just use the wings to flap. There was that whole galloping motion. And I wonder if part of that was either trying to be or just like subconsciously being reminiscent of the, was it The Thief of Baghdad in 1940? It was like the first movie with a real blue screen shot in it. And I believe they had like a flying horse in there. It didn't have wings, but it could gallop through the sky. Mm. And they did the same thing in there where it was like it was a real horse on a blue screen track. Oh, I see. I see. I see. They then keyed out. (laughs) So I wonder if that that was like an homage to that or. So, yeah, I'm I'm looking at images of the Fantasia horses and Mm -hmm. there's adult horses and there's little ponies and the little ponies. The wings are much smaller and I think disproportionately so. Hmm. But they look cutie. Right? <laughs> but the adult horses have roughly the same proportions of horse to wing as uh, Harryhausen ones. I and see. they they're quite majestic when they're flying and whatever. And like, you know, hmm. Fantasia is, is a wonderful movie, but that's a different story. Well, Pegasus was mostly animated by Jim Danforth, one of the yes. assistants on this. And the other assistant was Stephen Archer. And I believe he just did mostly uh, the Bubo animation. I think he wound up doing a little bit of the Kraken. Danforth came in late. He was Harryhausen's first choice as an assistant. Right. He was already booked for Caveman. Which we'll be talking about later. Yes. One of the very first things he had to do was the Flying Pegasus, which I can now see that it is animated. But I totally forgive my nine-year-old self for, for buying it. You know, It was like, yes, that was really good animation. But the Bubo stuff, they had like a version that they could control a bit with cables that they could have live on set with the actors. And there was since there was a little bit of that, it really felt to me like the whole thing was like that, you know, (laughs) almost, (laughs) you know, not even animated like it was a real character on the set. It's the cutest thing. I want one of those. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I don't know why I never liked Bubo. Really? Maybe I didn't like the launch boxes. (laughs) I don't know. (laughs) It's like, yeah, it's definitely very well animated and it's definitely a a very important character in the whole thing. I mean, like he, he basically saves the day. And there's a there's a few different versions of the the puppet for that. Like there was one, you know, one with outstretched wings and one with closed wings. But they they actually had like brass feathers on top of it, which must have been a real pain to try and work with. Maybe they yeah. had to wear thick gloves or something. Don't uh, don't cut your hands on Bubo. <laughs> <laughs> but I think the real star of it for me is Medusa. Oh well, Medusa is the masterpiece. Yeah, without, yeah, without a doubt. It's not just the animation, but it's the whole set is incredible. The lighting is incredible. Mm-hmm. Even the the choice of design for Medusa, like that she is half serpent herself. Mm-hmm. It's not just the beautiful woman that happens to have uh, snakes on the head. Right. But that 
most of her body is serpent-like. Eric Hazen said because he didn't want to have to animate a flowing gown. <laughs> so <laughs> let's give her a body that we can just animate straight. Yeah. She had a more human upper torso with, you know, more human uh, anatomy. Yeah. yeah. The producer's like, no, 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 we can't, <laughs> we can't have that. So they eventually painted over it and made it part of her snake body, too. Yeah. It's, it's the, the amount of details, right? Is there, yeah. Of, of, of her mammalian yep. anatomy was not quite permissible i guess <laughs> right well it was it was only going to be a pg movie and they already had human breasts in there but couldn't have the animated breasts i guess so yeah i, I don't know quite how that works well whatever <laughs> but, but it's he was talking about how for a while it was presented in schools and they would show them oh right the films as part of like you know greek mythology i know that just makes me laugh i'm just thinking of all of the middle school or high school classrooms where they showed that movie (laughs) like i remember when i was in high school and they showed us um romeo and juliet from like the mid 60s and there's like one scene where there's like must be you know eight frames of Juliet's breast as she like runs from the bed and you know to go get dressed and like I remember our teacher had to like stand in front of the TV to block our view of these you know horribly corrupting breasts that we might see it's <laughs> like okay whatever but you know so watching everybody cut each other's heads off that's a-okay yeah. <laughs> And again, playing with the shadows, like you, you don't see her directly first. You hear her. Right. And you see shadows of her animating. She's got that rattlesnake tail. You feel like Perseus really is doomed. Mm. How did you go in there with just three men and like they're all dead now? The basement of the temple. I was thinking during the sequence, it's like, you know, Medusa, maybe you could uh, see where these guys are a little easier if you clear out the uh, dead stone guys every once in a while there was like some old turned to stone guys that are still yeah. in there the, and she, the problem is she would have to do it herself right because if she she calls housekeeping right like oh, yeah. they, they all become more statues <laughs> like no no there's the firelight going that's the only light in the place so there's this flickering fire so they had to do the flickering animation on medusa as well so like just, adjusting the lights for every frame to have that flicker in there. Gluttons for punishment. <laughs> wow. And so many pieces. The arrows. The arrows are animated. Yep. So <sighs> so many pieces on her animated too. There's like 12 snakes. So that's 12 heads, 12 tails for every frame that he has to move. Her arms, her hands, the arrow, uh, you know, the bow. If she's pulling the bow back. If there's an arrow that flies off of her bow, it has to go onto some sort of wire so it can continue hanging in the air. Yeah, it's crazy. Just an astounding amount of work. The one thing that Harryhausen likes to do that he did not do with uh, Medusa, and I'm grateful for it, mm. is give her snaky arms. Well, he did that for the Kraken. He did that for the Kraken, but he gave the Kraken articulated hands, which makes no sense. It's like, how can you have bones in your hands, but no bones in your arms? It's just <laughs> No, no. So the Kraken, yeah, it's got those tentacle like arms. Yes. Four of them. There was like three of those built. There was like one little one that was at like a full character with the tail and everything about three foot long. So they could do the full motion. There was a large version that was 15 foot long. The whole thing was made of sponge rubber and weighted down with lead so they could film it underwater. 
And apparently there was the story in there that they like left it out on an island because they figured, oh, who's going to mess with it in the middle of the night? And they came back to the next morning and all the lead had been stolen. Yes. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Because I guess lead is precious there. (laughs) Some like some island in Spain where they shot it, right? Yeah. 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 I forgot about that story. (laughs) And then there was the kind of the medium sized one that was made just from the waist up, like about five foot tall and. That was the one that they use for most of the animation and in the scene where he's the Kraken is supposed to be attacking uh, Andromeda. And you have so many elements. You have water raging and you have the Kraken and you have Andromeda, sometimes Booba flying in front and Pegasus <laughs> flying in front. and like Oh, and the Kraken was swinging his hand and smacking Booba. And smacking and Pegasus. <laughs> yeah, it's like there's flying. all sorts of interactions and each, each little thing is just so crazy to like orchestrate Mm. you were talking in your last episode what was it called about introvision yes Uh, when i heard that it reminded me like harryhausen had his own little trick it gave him previews of uh, blue screens. Yeah, I think they, they did like a quick run through an optical printer for the version that they were editing in. But it wasn't they didn't go through the whole blue screen removal process. And because they, they wanted to make sure everything matched up first. But yeah, Correct. it was kind of a quick and dirty. Yeah, 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 exactly. It was um, a little hack, but it was when you're talking about weeks versus a day or two. You know, it's right. Like, it's a massive hack. And that reminds me, I should mention how they're actually recording the animation. Most of the time they're doing a rear screen process where they're they're projecting mm-hmm. from behind the screen onto the screen that is behind the diorama. And they're able to actually, you know, animate the characters right in front of the projected image. So they're actually recording it all in one. And I guess that's their real time preview, right? That's how they can see if you're hitting the sword. And right. You can actually see right through the camera whether the position is right or not from the camera's perspective. And then if they wanted to do something where it was like the top half of the image or two thirds or whatever, then they'll have the characters animated on an animation table in front of that projection. But then they, you know, eventually want to put the bottom half of the original background plate in there as well. They would mat out the bottom part of the camera lens so that they would only record that top half and the bottom half would be essentially unexposed, it would just be right. record black. And then when they were done animating the character, then they would go back to the beginning of the film, run the film through the camera again, but this time with the mat flipped so that it would record just that bottom part of the original image in there as well. So you can have characters in the middle of the frame. Now, I'm, I'm confused. Did they do that on Clash of the Titans? Or I mm-hmm. think that was more of a caveman thing. Or was it on both? Yeah, I guess they did that on Caveman as well. But we're going to be talking about Caveman in a little bit. And you're going to be coming back for that, right? Yes. See you then. Okay. It's time for the Optical Trivia Contest brought to you by Cinefix. What would summer be without its celluloid superheroes? Faced with dynamite images from Captain America, the Winter Soldier, and the amazing Spider-Man 2, Cinefix has decided to share the glory and lend their cover to both films. Readers who buy Cinefix 138 in stores will find Spider-Man leaping away from a fiery explosion, while subscribers will be treated to Captain America's sidekick, Falcon, spreading his enormous metal wings. But that's not all. Their Dynamite Summer issue also includes stories on two other summer hits, Godzilla and Maleficent. And there's a special surprise waiting that will blow your mind. 
Steven Zirkus has unearthed new information on the legendary Willis O'Brien, animator of the original King Kong, and his bitter rivalry with producer Herbert M. Dolly that challenges long-held assumptions about what was at stake and who was to blame. Multi-Oscar winner Dennis Murin says, A shocking betrayal fit for Extra or TMZ finally gets told in Cinefix, and it's a doozy. Pre-order this week, and not only can you pick the cover of your choice, Spider-Man or Falcon, but your issue will go out in their first mailing for a mid-June arrival. Pre-order your copy now at Cinefix.com and click on Next Issue. Congratulations to Rob Humphreys, winner of the Episode 4 Trivia Contest, in which the answer was the front screen projection technique used in Outland was IntraVision. If you'd like to win a one-year print subscription to Cinefix Magazine, plus a delightful slipcase to keep them all in, just answer this question. Name three feature films that Ray Harryhausen worked on. It's that simple. Send your answer to feedback at opticalpodcast.com by midnight Pacific time, June 21st, 2014, for your chance to win. See past winners and full rules at opticalpodcast.com. Next up, we talk with Ed Marsh about modern stop motion techniques and a lot about the state of 3D stereo. So here with me is filmmaker Ed Marsh. How are you doing, Ed? Doing good, Mark. How are you? Good. Uh, it looks like you've had a, a lot of different roles in the filmmaking industry over the years. Uh, yeah, I think the, the, the way I like to refer to it is I was raised by wolves. <laughs> I have sort of bounced around. I would say that my, the predominance of my experience is in the field of post-production mm -hmm. and editorial, but I've also been working with VFX and uh, I've done a little bit of writing. Mm -hmm. So I, I sort of touch on several different aspects of the of the industry, but that's about as concise as I care to get. To uh, link into the rest of this episode where we've covered Clash of the Titans with Ray Harryhausen and the movie Caveman, both having some bits of stop motion animation. Right. Atuk Alunalana, Zug Zug. I remember that film. <laughs> My co-host will be very happy to hear that. <laughs> you know that. You also worked on, uh, I believe, as a, a writer on a documentary about Chicken Run when that came out, correct? Oh, yes. It was actually very cool. I got to work on DreamWorks publicity for Chicken Run, and I got to do the HBO First Look special and an NBC documentary about it. And it was so much fun to go to what I consider to be the mecca of claymation mm -hmm. and to meet Peter Lord and, and Nick Park. It was a lot of fun. Oh, very cool. And I have to say, I've done my own uh, claymation Obviously, at the student nice. level, uh -huh. but uh, it, it was actually very cool. Nick Park allowed me to leave a VHS copy of my student film <laughs> there at Ardman, so I can say I've screened at Ardman. Very nice. And I have a feeling he's using it as a coaster if he's using it for anything <laughs> at all. But uh, it was still nice to be able to to do so. Have you gotten a, a sense of like how the modern uh, stop motion animator kind of differs from what the uh, the old masters i would say used to do oh i would say the the main thing is they can hedge every single bat <laughs> when harryhausen was working he basically kept track of it in his head oh yeah i mean yes he took notes and clearly he'd paste things out on paper before he took the time to move the armatures 
-hmm. but that's nothing compared to the tools that they use at Aardman. Every camera essentially has, is digital now, right? Mm -hmm. At least when they're working. And so it's not even a video tap per se. It's, you get instant feedback of the picture you've taken. Hmm. And at every station, they have the ability to basically show you the sequence. So you can replay it up to now. You can replay it all the way through. And in fact, for the first time ever, if they feel like there's a single frame in the middle of an otherwise perfect sequence, Mm -hmm. they can go back. They can retake that shot if there's something about it they don't like. And so technically, it's exactly the level of control you want when you're working that way. Mm -hmm. It also allows them to atomize the work quite a bit. So, for example, in Chicken Run, you have the dance sequence. Mm Mm-hmm. And each animator might be working on a nearly identical set. You know, maybe it's one wall or the other wall, and they're each working on a shot. But every day they might be responsible for it. I'm sorry, I don't know how much animation they turn out in a day. It might be as little as two seconds. Mm -hmm. It might be less, depending on the complexity. Essentially, the whole sequence can be worked on at once, and each animator has a section of it. Hmm. And they've duplicated the characters. They've duplicated the workspaces. Uh, They have a fabrication shop like you wouldn't believe. (laughs) So that you get this tremendous continuity and every animator can be working on the sequence at once and it can be reviewed every day. And it's like, oh, this is great. We just let's let's extend this a few frames. And, you know, I'm not going to get into the editorial process of it because I didn't witness that. I don't want to say what they do or don't do. Sure. But just having multiple iterations of sets and multiple iterations of characters and a trained staff of animators who talk and work and collaborate and sort of develop the characters together. So like there was definitely like a lead ginger animator and a lead Rocky animator, Hmm. but uh, they weren't the only ones to touch the characters. As far as I know, I think they were shared just like everything. And uh, Hmm. Nick Park and Peter Lord sort of worked to make sure that the character was preserved through that process. Oh, wow. It sounds like a very different world from kind of Harryhausen's one man band kind of uh, process. Oh, absolutely. On one level, the creativity is is manifest and magnified through the ability to spreadsheet it, if you will. Mm. Right. So they'll they'll do the breakdowns just like on a VFX sequence. They'll have the storyboards and they'll decide how many animators are needed for it. How many shots are, you know, they break it down and they sort of really plan it in advance. And not that Harryhausen didn't plan, but it's just you have this ability to revisit, to redo. And, mm-hmm. you know, just the idea that you could do rehearsal takes in animation, <laughs> you know, claymation is fascinating to me. Yeah. It's like we've roughed out the motion, get that to editorial. And uh, when they're happy with it, we'll work on one where there's fewer fingerprints on the surface of the clay or whatever. You know, <laughs> another thing that surprised me is. A friend of mine lived in Chicago and and got an internship at an advertising company. And he walked into a room, he explains, it was like a storage closet. And he turned on the light and he was confronted by, let's call it a thousand Pillsbury Doughboys. (laughs) And these were all hard clay sculptures that had been made and Mm. essentially, you know, registered into place. And so if you blinked rapidly and moved your head from left to right, you could watch the Doughboy sort of react to being touched in the tummy, you know, the little, (laughs) um, and then over on another shelf, they had three different hands on crankshafts so that, that, you know, they were used to push the finger into the belly. Oh, wow. It was a physically stored object, right? Hmm. So, you know, and I, I think they had the, the white female hand, the black female hand, and I think they had a white man's hand. There was a little bit of that at Aardman because the clay, even though you think of these things as, as basically the same thing as modeling clay, Mm. They have a 
a thicker, more robust consistency. Mm. And they are built around armatures, just like the Harryhausen sculptures. You just don't think of that because the motion is so fluid. And one of the things that they do is they try and design their characters in such a way that it's easy to have mouth replacement. Just like traditional cell animation, they have mouth positions that are used for the different phonemes of speech. Right. Um, uh, You can probably find those in in any animation textbook, but they have those represented in three dimensions for each character. And so every model comes with a cadre of mouths and eyes Hmm. and they get used throughout the day. And if a, a mouth gets messy, a replacement is brought so that they can continue to work with it. And the fabrication department just keeps going. Just how many mouths do you need? What do you need? Mrs. Tweedy needs another sound. (laughs) And so they make sure it's available to the animator. You know, they just, they keep them well fed. So it's been a long time since I've been at Aardman. I can't tell you that this is how they're still working. Mm -hmm. And in fact, I think the sad truth is they have found some very easy ways to mimic what they did with stop motion using CG. Mm -hmm. So while I know they always will build their study models, I can't, tell you for fact that they use them in their work. Flushed Away, I think, was predominantly computer-generated. Huh. Now, I could be wrong about that, because I haven't been paying attention, but I do know it's something that they're playing with. Interesting. You've also been uh, an editor, a director of some of these documentary shorts. Mm -hmm. Have you done any other... Uh, like directing any features in this town there's always the potential and i've I've got some irons in the fire as they say but i wouldn't hold my breath and i haven't held my breath (laughs) if it happens organically fantastic one of the ways i describe myself is i'm cursed with opinions (laughs) oh no well yes because if you're not the director or a producer that can be a problem right maybe ultimately they'll realize that that isn't such a curse and they'll give me an opportunity and some things are in the process that may or may not happen. So I don't mean to be cagey and I don't mean to sound like more is happening than it is. I am a, <laughs> a working filmmaker, happily working in the VFX industry. I have nothing to complain about, but uh, I'm cursed with opinion. So I'm hoping I get to, to do something more with that ultimately. Uh, it seems one of your specialties lately has been doing 3D stereo work. Yeah. Um, starting with Aliens of the Deep. Would that be right? Well, Actually, it goes uh, before that. Ghost okay. of the Abyss uh, was sort of my first adventure in 3D. Uh. And let's let's see if I can set this up properly. I had spent a lot of time working on James Cameron's motion pictures, uh, doing the behind the scenes. I've, I've cut trailers for him. Mm. I've cut documentaries about his work. Um, I'm very proud of the documentary I made called Under Pressure, Making the Abyss. Oh, I love that. Which it's on the special edition DVD, and I think you can probably find it in no less than 37 parts on YouTube, if you know what about <laughs> That that was sort of my relationship with Cameron. I was allowed to document his work. Mm. Uh, And uh, it was fun to do. But when he decided to actually make documentaries, I think I might have been one of the first names he thought of because he knew that I cut documentary style. Mm. I've done some news pieces. I've done some straight documentary, but I've done a lot of movie related work. So he brought me on board and that began my stereo education because he was starting to work with his uh, first generation It was a side-by-side rig that Vince Pace and uh, Jim Cameron had been experimenting with. Mm -hmm. And it was a digital 3D camera near the beginning of the time when that was possible. Right. And they had taken these larger Sony HD cameras. uh, Model number, if I remember correctly, was the F900, Mm -hmm. which was their Cine Alta platform. And they'd gotten some modified versions where essentially they had chopped a lot of the electronics off of the back of the camera. Hmm. So it's essentially the imaging head, Mm -hmm. a fiber optic cable, a lot of the electronics, more cabling, 
to a recording medium. Okay. And this was hmm. early days. So you were recording to left eye and you were recording to right eye. There was no ability to record both images to disc. You were recording to tape. Hmm. And they thought that that fairly delicate system would be uh, perfect to take to see into the middle of the North Atlantic for a couple of months. <laughs> <laughs> and in fact, it, it worked pretty well. And it was a, a really good shakedown cruise. Uh, Jim was obviously going back to the Titanic to dive the wreck. Right. Um, he had a couple of goals. He wanted to image the Titanic in stereo. And he had these little ROVs, remote operated vehicles, that he had built and his brother had designed mm -hmm. um, that could move inside the wreck. So it was a perfectly valid expedition to, to go uh, look at how the Titanic wreck looks inside. Mm -hmm. And he wanted to record it all in stereo. And so I went to see. And that was the beginning of my stereo education. Mm -hmm. We had a stereo screening room, but it was on the top level of the ship. And this ship was about seven decks tall. Oh. Okay, It was the Russian research vessel, the academic Keldish. Oh, no. Just to give you some control, uh, some reference, the space where I worked, which was uh, called Mission Control, mm -hmm. was, I want to say, two decks below sea level. Mm -hmm. Nice and stable. Nice and stable. Basically near the waterline. Um, so yeah, look, it got woozy, and, and we'll talk about seasickness later if you're truly curious. <laughs> but the main thing was, I could either watch the imagery as it came in live, mm -hmm. and fast toggle left eye and right eye on a single HD monitor, mm -hmm. or I could run upstairs to see the image in stereo. Mm -hmm. I am not a particularly athletic person. <laughs> so uh, while I did do that on occasion, I basically had to stay in mission control so that I could evaluate how the image looked and, and tell that to the, the camera team shooting on the surface of the ship or in a various room or in the sub bay. They were all over the ship. Right. And so I got very good at fast toggling the left eye and the right eye view. Hmm. So I would watch stereo dailies at night. I'd literally set two tapes playing because our takes were long, mm -hmm. run upstairs and learn to see what that looked like. And then I would watch it again down in mission control, fast toggling. And as silly as it sounds, that ability to fast toggle made me very good at understanding what was good or bad about stereo imagery. Mm -hmm. Because a lot of what you do when you are working in stereo is you are trying to ameliorate the things that just look bad in stereo. Right. And so, oh, that background is moving too much. That's a lot of split. That might be causing eyes to go wall-eyed. We might be going beyond infinity. <laughs> Let's change convergence on that. Right. Or, ooh, that image is shifting a lot going forward. That might be uncomfortable. Let's look at that and see if we need to make an adjustment. Or, ooh, that image is slightly rotated compared to the other image. Or, oh, that image is slightly out of focus compared to the other image. Mm. So all the problems you get with stereo photography become clearer if you fast toggle. Because if you're watching a stereo image, the mind does everything it can to fuse the two images together. Mm. And each eye sort of covers for the other. So if one eye is slightly soft your mind will fill in the information from the stronger eye. Right. If one eye is slightly underexposed, the information again is filled in by the other eye. So while collectively you might be experiencing a tremendous amount of eye strain, you won't necessarily know why unless you take a look at each eye individually. That's very interesting. I've worked on a few uh, 3D television shows and there's a friend of mine, Tom Schmidt, who was on our first episode. He has only one good eye oh, funny. and he actually works that way to, to develop shows in 3D. I believe the director of the original House of Wax only had one eye. Hmm. 
I think that's a trivia. You can check me on that. I think his <laughs> name is uh, Detoth. Mm. It's worth looking up, but I, I, I think that's one of the trivia facts that stereo people like to trade over beers. <laughs> so, you know, yeah, I mean, stereo vision, obviously, it is a, a very powerful thing and it's great to look at something in stereo. But if you're trying to make it better, you do sort of have to look at the component parts to see what's wrong and what you can improve. Mm. That documentary and Aliens of the Deep uh, led to the first use of Cameron's uh, camera system on a feature, which was Journey to the Center of the Earth. Ah, yes. And largely I was hired because I had pioneered a lot of the workflow to have this camera material be put into an Avid and to be edited and made and ultimately released in IMAX, although that wasn't the destination for Journey. Mm -hmm. It was just getting it out theatrically. And so a lot of the stuff that I had sort of worked on got incorporated into the workflow of that feature. And then after that, I didn't work in stereo for quite a while. Mm. So I, I found a diagram of your workflow from that film that... Uh, oh, goodness gracious. <laughs> it's, I, I find it interesting that you guys cut the right eye and not the left eye in, in flat before conforming everything. Mm -hmm. uh, for all the TV shows that I've worked on, we've always cut the left eye. Was there any reasoning behind that or just a flip of the coin? I believe that might have been because that was the eye that didn't go through the mirror. Um, on the pace rig when it was in its most common oh i'm sorry one other thing i should mention uh obviously stereo filmmaking is an attempt to mimic or recreate the experience with our own vision right so the metaphor of the human eyes is quite common in fact when you get material back it's not labeled left camera right camera generally it's labeled left eye right eye right uh, which is sort of hilarious because no eyes were involved <laughs> in capturing that image <laughs> but uh, the the thing is, uh, the early camera and pace rigs were limited because they were side by side rigs. So the closest you could get the the lens centers, and this is from memory, mm -hmm. was maybe two and a quarter inches, hmm. and that can be considered aggressive for stereo photography, depending on your target screen size. In our case, it was IMAX. Mm. So it was rather big. You can certainly choose to work that way. And IMAX cameras obviously have had bigger interoculars. But mm. when you're trying to create comfortable vision, oftentimes you will work with a smaller interocular or interaxial value. So the beam splitters, which were first used on Journey to the Center of the Earth, were lovely in that regard because we had total control. We could go all the way from zero, essentially shooting an identical left eye, right eye, mm. to I, I think the early beam splitters could go out to. I want to say four inches, huh. that's from memory. So you could get into hyper stereo situations if you, if you wanted to. Right. But the reason why we chose right eye on journey is because it was the left eye camera that shot through the mirror was shooting down through the mirror. Mm. So it had been flopped. It had passed through the mirror. Sometimes it was softer as a consequence because they were monitoring right eye as the, as the primary eye. Mm. So it was just safer for VFX purposes to make right eye the master eye. Interesting. Then you took a break from stereo for a while. Well, I think in part because no one was making stereo films. Mm -hmm. um, Jim had started Avatar, um, and I wasn't involved with that except very early during the planning stages. I, I decided to, to go elsewhere. Right. And no one else was really playing with stereo. You know, Journey to the Center of the Earth is very proud for being the first live action digital 3d film ever released and in fact it, it wasn't because we'd done the documentaries in digital uh yes they were released in imax mm. so then they had to change the advertising to be the first live action digital feature 
Uh, <laughs> and then the funny thing is everyone forgot about it because when Cameron's Avatar came out, it was the first 3D feature and uh, <laughs> the biggest the biggest budget wins. So uh, but there wasn't a lot of stereo filmmaking uh, other than animation done between Journey to the Center of the Earth and Avatar. And once Avatar proved itself to be such the financial success that it was, mm-hmm. everyone started saying, hey, <laughs> why don't we do this with more of our films. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in fact, it's sort of interesting because the tools used to repair bad stereo shots are essentially the same tools you use in conversion. Mm-hmm. So someone quite rightly asked the question, well, why can't we just do this for an entire film? And someone else said that would be insane. <laughs> and then that person was fired. <laughs> And suddenly it became a viable business model. Interesting. Um, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm being a little bit facetious, but it's sure. not that far from the truth. Uh, Prime Focus was in a situation where they could say, hey, we have these tools. We know how to do this. Mm-hmm. And we have uh, this highly scalable workforce. Let's see if we can do this. And they got permission to basically experiment on Clash of the Titans. Hmm. You know, the redo, not the Harryhausen original. Sure. And, you know, look, when you realize what they accomplished as essentially a test Hmm. over a period of, I want to say, this is from memory, 10 weeks. Wow. From start to finish conversion. Holy cow. It's impressive. Now, Clash of the Titans takes a a tremendous hit for being a crappy stereo conversion. Mm Mm-hmm. And I think there are parts there where, yes, that should not have been put in front of an audience. It's, it, you know, it was still beta. Mm-hmm. And so you, you can argue forever about the philosophical choice of whether or not they should have released that film. But it was a proof of concept. Mm-hmm. And it definitely showed that it was possible to do good stereo as well as bad stereo via conversion. Mm-hmm. And emboldened by that, the other studios started paying attention, including Fox who had this large film, uh, the third Narnia film, that they wanted to try and retrofit into stereo. And they decided about, I want to say, eight months before release that this was going to happen. And Mm -hmm. because Walden Media was involved and because I'd been involved in Journey to the Center of the Earth and the documentaries, Mm -hmm. um, they essentially tapped me to supervise the stereo conversion. That's Voyage of the Dawn Treader, right? Yes. Yeah. The one with the boat in it. (laughs) (laughs) This was mostly a conversion then? Uh, it was completely a conversion. Okay. I guess I shouldn't say that because almost all of these films that have a heavy visual effects basis right. have the ability for quote unquote true stereo, or at the very least in the full CG realm, they can place another camera and get a stereo pair right. that is theoretically orthographically perfect stereo. There is no fudging, which is basically the entire process of conversion. Right. So you are seeing true stereo. And I'll be honest with you, I don't remember how many shots on Narnia qualified in that category, but I will say that every VFX vendor was game. If there was a shot that was pure CG in their realm, they were very curious to see if they could render the other eye as well. And I have to say one of the bravest companies in this regard was MPC. And they did great work. I don't know if you saw the film, but uh, there is this giant sea serpent that sort of rears its ugly head near the end of the film. Right. And it's, it's not a simple creature and it's not a simple environment. And I have to say they were, they were game and they gave us lots of true stereo shots in that sequence. So Hmm. while I say the third Narnia film, Don Treader was a converted film. 
in truth, when there's enough of a visual effects component, you get true stereo from that. Mm. But in the meantime, all of the quote unquote drama, which is a term I hate, VFX sort of divides the d- divides films into well, there's the VFX shots and then there's the drama. <laughs> and I say, no, 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 that's bullshit. <laughs> the whole film is the drama. And in fact, some of the VFX shots have more drama than the non-VFX shots. Indeed. <laughs> but in the in the non-VFX shots, none of that was planned to be in stereo. Mm. So uh, essentially my process was working with the editor and working with the director to sort of say, all right, this, these are the sequences, these are how you're cutting, these are things that I can do, these are things I can't do. Mm-hmm. Would you maybe consider extending this shot because it has a nice stereo component as we wrap around the ship? Or would you consider using an alternate take because this shot isn't as good for stereo? And mm. the thing is treading lightly because I think a film has to work first and foremost as a narrative. Sure. And it's only to the extent that you're constantly making camera choices and to the extent that you can make choices that are beneficial or at least not hard for stereo, mm-hmm. it's worth paying attention to that, but not to the extent that it drives everything. Because if the studio executives got their way, it would sort of look like, do you remember Second City Television and uh, Dr. Tung's 3D horror movie, I think it was called? <laughs> I'm, I'm not sure that I do. But... Okay. This will be a reference that a lot of people won't get, but, but if I remember correctly, it's John Candy. Okay. And the scene is like, Perhaps you are overwhelmed by the smell of my rose lapel. <laughs> and then he pulls his jacket up to the lens and like <laughs> leans, rocks in and rocks out. <laughs> and that's like the stereo moment. And I think they even have a theremin sound effect when it happens. <laughs> so if the studio marketing department and executives got their way. Uh, our eyeballs would be continually massaged by <laughs> things coming at us. And that's not the modern stereo aesthetic. You know, obviously... Mm-hmm. They want some of that because that's part of the stereo experience. You do want the visceral experience of being closer to the scene or in the action. And if water's splashing at you, you kind of want it to come at you, Mm -hmm. but not to the extent that it takes you out of the story. And that's the real challenge of stereo, I think, because it's asking you to engage physically with the environment. Yeah. I would say movies are better at dream state than they are at reality. Mm. I'm going to find a Laurie Anderson quote, which I like. Okay. If I knew what she said this in, I would point you to it. I might be able to find it. But this is a Laurie Anderson quote. The eyes are really kind of primitive. They're like pre-World War II field cameras. I mean, the lenses are very crude. You can't do any zooms and the pans look really terrible and dolly shots are a mess. What with your feet moving up and down like that all the time. (laughs) It's not too smooth. And then she goes on to say, well, for example, let's say you walk into a restaurant and here's what your eye is really seeing. The door swings open and there's an awkward jerk backwards and the flash of somebody's arm. Then a rickety scan of the restaurant as you look for a table. Suddenly the floor lurches into view as someone bumps into you. If at the end of the day you looked at the rushes of this shoot, you'd immediately fire the cameraman. (laughs) But the point is, when you think back on the same scene in the restaurant or when you dream about it, Suddenly, the camera work has really improved. You see the establishing shot, a bird's eye view of the restaurant, followed by a two shot of you and your dining partner. Things are really well lit and fairly well cut. Your mind has fixed it all up for you. Mm. And I think that this is one reason why filmmaking works. Mm -hmm. It's closer to memory or closer to dream state than it is to how we actually physically experience the world. And 3D brings a visceral quality to the proceedings and enforces a level of reality that can sometimes compete with this dream state, if you will. Interesting. 
So I don't know. And it's the added distancing of the glasses. Right. Right. So you're constantly made much more aware that you are looking at something. And that can be detrimental if you're trying to feel something. I love the Pixar movie Up. Mm-hmm. And, and Bob Whitehill, the stereographer on that film, did an amazing job. But I have to say, it's a problem for me in 3D. Because when I see the beginning and I see the montage of Carl and Ellie's relationship. Yes. And she's, spoiler alert, dying. And I start to bawl like a baby. Mm-hmm. I have to take off my 3D glasses. <laughs> Then I have to take off my regular glasses. I have to wipe my eyes. I now have to dry my regular glasses, (laughs) put them back on, and then make sure my 3D glasses are dry, put them back on, Mm -hmm. and it's almost time for the end credits. So, (laughs) you know, unfortunately, I, I, I do think this is true. I think there is a limiting effect to stereo to keep you from feeling the movie. Mm -hmm. Now that could just be overly aware me who works in stereo. Maybe everyone else is able to forget it. And I I guarantee you kids don't care. Mm -hmm. Um, They tend to put on the glasses and forget they're wearing them. And they are generally very into the stereo experience. Mm -hmm. Do you feel like, you know, since that time that the stereo experience has gotten better? I mean, of course, any conversions have gotten more refined, mm-hmm. but is the experience better just w- in watching in 3D? I think we have not yet seen the best stereo. And I think mm. in part it's because how stereo is distributed is still very limited. Mm-hmm. There are several factors at play here. Let's try and address them one at a time. Projection. Mm-hmm. As of now, you still have a single image coming out of a single projector at a time. Mm-hmm. For most theaters. Now, there are some special projectors that have two lenses. The Sony 4K projector can put left eye and right eye on the screen at the same time. Mm -hmm. And that's great. But in general commercial release, anytime you go see a stereo film, it's generally one projector. And what that means is it has to rapidly alternate between the left eye and the right eye, almost like the fields of old NTSC television. Mm -hmm. And so I, I believe it's a triple flash rate. So every single frame is shown three times interweaved. So frame one is left, right, left, right, left, right. And then the next cadence begins. And the second frame is left, right, left, right, left, right. Hmm. And so what that means is you have shuttering information or essentially any strobing artifact is going to be exacerbated by that process. Right. And that's one of the reasons why uh, Peter Jackson and people like James Cameron are trying to sell 48 and 60 frame per second frame rates because it helps eliminate this strobing motion Mm. by taking the uh, refresh rate and shrinking it. In theory, they're improving the experience of motion, which should make pans a little easier to follow and other super fast motion easier to follow. Mm, That's interesting. I I just saw Doug Trumbull's uh, Magi process here Mm -hmm. in in Seattle the other weekend, and he's Uh doing 120 frames per second, 3D, 4K. There you go. And it, it does seem, you know, like I've heard people say, oh, the 48 frame is more like looking through a window and I don't agree with that. I think it feels a little bit too much like video frame rates to mm-hmm, me, but mm-hmm. but this 120 frames per second two eyes, it really does feel like looking through a window. Interesting. You know, I think that's very funny. I I interned at Showscan mm. back in the 80s while I was in school. I remember distinctly there was this one film they made. I think it was called Collector. Mm. And it was like a basically a giant car commercial. I don't remember which car vendor it was for. But the premise is that this giant alien ship comes down to covet and take the latest of our automobile technology. <laughs> and for all I know, it was typical American sedan number 27. I don't remember. <laughs> 
But I do remember that one of the big selling points was the tilting steering wheel, huh. right? And they decided to portray this in this film with jump cuts. So the steering wheel is in one position and then snap, it's in the next position. Like the ancient Bewitched uh, or I Dream of Genie, where they blink and suddenly someone appears. Yes. But in Showscan, which I believe ran at 60 frames per second, it had a very visceral effect on me because my eyes had been tricked. It was like, mm. whoa, wait, wasn't that steering wheel just in a different position? So something that I probably would have taken completely for granted was made new again because of the increased frame rate. Hmm. And I'm wondering if that sort of experience hasn't repeated itself continually through cinematic history. Because you always hear these stories about the first time they cut to a close-up and people gasped, or the first time the train came at the camera and people mm -hmm. ducked, right. look out! <laughs> and we're talking about a 16 frame per second, very juddery black and white image. Right. And it was just too real for people. So I wonder if human visual perception isn't continually upping its game to deal with this continually improving technology. Hmm. Is 120 frames per second the new threshold? Because I remember Trumbull talking at great length about the psychological testing he did. He had people on EKGs and he was looking at heart rates and other yeah. responses. And he basically said the sweet spot is somewhere around 54 frames per second. Beyond that, people can't perceive any blank space. It's all screen time. And therefore, that's the best. And he upped it to 60. So it would be from memory again. He upped it to 60 so that he could be compatible with American video systems, hmm. essentially one frame per, per field. Right. But now he's working at 120. Has he done new research to say this is the new standard? Or is it, is it just a matter of this is what the eye is now able to perceive as being best? Hmm. Or maybe it is the difference between what we think of as video and what we think of as a window. You say it looks better. Hmm. You know, and I, I think it's interesting because my son loves The Hobbit. And we saw it at the HFR. And quite honestly, I didn't like it all that much because I was reminded of the metaphor that I'm familiar with from my own childhood, from BBC shows, where mm -hmm. if, if you were inside, you shot video. If you were outside, you shot film. <laughs> right. And this looked like video shot outside, and therefore that's wrong. <laughs> <laughs> and plus, I, I felt that The Hobbit suffered from the fact that we had three beautiful movies and over a decade's understanding of how that world looked mm -hmm. on film at 24 frames per second right. in 2D. And so to go back into that space, with this new heightened experience, it just didn't feel right. Hmm. Interesting. So I thought that that was something to overcome. And I, I just, to me, it was a barrier between getting into the story because I, I knew what it looked like and it was different. But my son had no problem with it. He loved it. Hmm. So I think it's as much cultural and experiential as anything. Interesting. So that's projection. That's one limitation hmm. of 3D in the current stage, mm -hmm. right? Screens. Right now, you have essentially three competing standards for how you can see stereo in a commercial theater. Right. Real D, mm -hmm. which is polarized glasses and a polarizing screen at the projector to keep left eye from being shown to right eye. Mm -hmm. So your glasses say, all right, this is my left eye. I only want to look at left eye image. This is my right eye. I only want to look at right eye image. Mm -hmm. And the act of switching between left eye and right eye as the projection is on screen is done by an active polarizing screen between the projector and the screen. Mm -hmm. But the thing is, for polarization like that to work, 
you need a highly collimated polarized light bouncing off of the screen to your glasses. White screens don't do that. They'd allow too, for too much scatter. Right. So the images would bleed together. You might still get a 3D effect, but it would definitely be compromised. So they have to use silver screens, which do a better job of keeping the light collimated as it bounces back at you. But the problem with silver screens is they tend to have a really big hot spot in the middle right. with tremendous fall off on the edge. They're harder to maintain. They're harder to keep clean. They're more fragile. Mm. So the theaters that invest in silver screens almost never have really good silver screens. Mm. And on top of that, <laughs> you are now basically getting a bit of tunnel vision looking at it. Right. All right. So that's one style. The theaters that choose to use the white screen have two choices. You have the Dolby system, right. which uses the dichroic classes, the, mm -hmm. the weird sort of orange-blue lenses. And they essentially use a rotating color wheel to do this, basically the same as a, a red-blue anaglyph. If you've ever looked at a comic book, a black-and-white comic book with 3D, right. you get the red and blue glasses, right. and you can see stereo that way. And it's a fancier system for that. It's a full-spectrum anaglyph. So they can use a white screen, which eliminates the white spot. And for a while, it was brighter than other stereo systems, although I think, I think everyone's caught up in that regard. Mm. But what you do get is in the red spectrum, you don't get perfect recreation in the left and right eye. Mm. So I remember when I saw How to Train Your Dragon, when they're in sort of the, the lava pit with the, the final dragon, or you know, the, if it were a video game, you'd call it the boss. <laughs> right. Um, the image was kind of electric because the red didn't reproduce the same in the left and the right eye. Mm. And I found that very annoying. I had to watch uh, The Amazing Spider-Man in the Dolby format. Mm. He wears a red outfit, a red and blue outfit. <laughs> and so there were shots, not every shot, because we tried to control it. Sure. But there were shots where he felt different in each eye. And again, it just drew attention to itself in a weird way. Mm. But for me, the main problem with Dolby is how reflective the glasses are. Oh, yes. I noticed that. <laughs> you end up looking at your own eyeball. And yes, cinema can be self-reflexive, but that's not <laughs> what they meant. Okay, It's both the outside and the inside of yeah. the lenses feel like they're mirrored almost. And you kind of get the light bouncing off of your face reflecting into the inside of your glasses. So it's, yes. there's like this halo of light around the screen. So you get a lot of crosstalk, which yeah. just isn't all that pleasant. And again, makes you just more aware that you're looking at something. Right. And then the last readily available commercial system is XBAND-D, which also uses a white screen mm. because the polarizers are actually on your face. You have LCD screens built into those glasses. And these, these are the really thick glasses that have a battery built in. Mm -hmm. And so there are these very thick glasses. You can use a white screen, but now you're sort of wearing something sort of the equivalent of a of like a welding mask. It's, it's heavy <laughs> and it doesn't sit well on your face and it can actually cause fatigue. And if you wear glasses, they're much harder to fit onto your own eye. Right. So how is that going to get better? I can tell you, I have seen, and we used on Spider-Man 2, uh, this screen technology from Real D called Precision White. Hmm. They've actually sort of gone back to how screens are formulated and have found a way to use a white screen and preserve polarization. Interesting. And it is my favorite commercially available stereo system because you no longer have a hotspot. It's brighter. The colors are more vibrant. You don't have to worry about dealing with things sort of getting muddy through the silver of the silver screen. Mm -hmm. And you can still wear the lightest and most pleasant of the three styles of eyewear because you don't get the big reflections back in your face that you get from the Dolby system. Mm -hmm. And you're not expected to wear a pound of technology on your nose <laughs> like you are with Expand D. 
Right. And it being a white screen, it can show 2D or 3D. You don't the theater owners don't have to differentiate. So it's much better for them ultimately. Mm. And this sounds like a commercial for them, but I I think <laughs> if you own a theater and you see the difference, it's going to be something that you would be interested in investing in if you hope to show 3D films. Interesting. I think the best 3D experience commercially available isn't seen by many people yet. I think everywhere they go there's a level of compromise. Right. You also have the problem, and this is going to be a problem for quite a while, with the fact that essentially when you watch a regular digital film, right, assuming most theaters these days are run off of digital projectors, right? if the theater's to spec, you're getting 14-foot Lamberts of light reflected off the screen at you, and that makes for a nice bright image, right? Yep. But because of stereo, you get all these limitations. Left eye and right eye have to share the screen, therefore you get half as much light. It's cut in half at the projection. It's cut in half by the glasses on your face. You end up essentially lucky if you get four to five foot Lamberts of brightness coming to you. Mm. And so you have to time the film differently for stereo. Mm. And essentially people always say, oh, well, it's a daylight scene. Therefore, it will survive stereo because stereo is dark. That's not actually true (laughs) because it's the highlights that you're sacrificing. Mm -hmm. You are now living in the foot of the exposure curve. So you actually have a million different shades of darkness you can do. Dark scenes actually are great. I think that's one of the reasons why Prometheus looked really good in stereo Mm. because you can definitely live in the toe of the curve. But if you have a single highlight, it's going to blow out much faster when you're looking at it in stereo Mm. than you when you're looking at it in 2D. Interesting. So how is that going to change? And the answer is laser projection. Hmm. Laser projection is coming. I have not seen it myself, but people who have say it's beautiful. I I saw some from uh, both uh, Barco and Christie at NAB Mm -hmm. uh, a few weeks ago. What did you think? First of all, they use um, dichroic lasers and use the Dolby 3D system. Oh, so aside, oh, never mind. <laughs> aside from the reflection issue, it, it was it was definitely the best separation I'd ever seen. Okay. It was a very clear image, but but both of them seem to be going in the Dolby 3D direction. Hmm. All right. Well, maybe if Dolby can improve its glasses technology, I'll shut up. <laughs> My preference these days is real D with, an, uh, with a precision white screen if you can swing it. Yeah. Um, and my real preference is to have two projectors mm. so that you don't have to deal with the strobing. Or the Sony 4K projector, which basically has a prism in it that splits a single image that has left eye, right eye, stacked top, bottom, if I remember correctly. Right. And collimates it on screen. I think most of their big new laser projectors have six lasers in them instead of just three for the red, green, blue. So they could do that dichroic split between the two. I see. Um, and have them on screen simultaneously. So at least it gets rid of the, the flickering a little bit. All right. Well, if it helps strobing, okay. We'll see. But the, here's the thing. The technology is still evolving. And it's just like digital has been continually evolving. Sure. So we're we're in a resolution battle. We're in a color space battle. And we're in a frame rate battle. So we'll we'll see what wins. Hmm. Does any of this affect storytelling? No. <laughs> Not really. I've said this for many years, which is if a UFO lands in front of a 7-Eleven and a little alien pops out and plants his flag (laughs) in a hostess cupcake Mm -hmm. and the only camera to get it is the 10 frame per second black and white security camera that they maintain at the Mm 7-Eleven, that's broadcast quality. Mm -hmm. We have experienced the full gamut of emotions that filmmaking offers us in black and white. We've experienced it in color. We've experienced it silently. We've experienced it with sound. How the story makes it to the screen is less important than what the story is. It does affect how it's told. Mm. And and maybe it affects how many people it will reach. 
But I don't think filmmaking and storytelling has been fundamentally changed by the addition of stereo. Mm-hmm. You know, again, this, this, this gets into a philosophical point. When sound came out, mm-hmm. ticket prices didn't go up. When color came out, ticket prices didn't go up, in part because they knew they were competing with the new fangled thing called television. Right. Mm-hmm. But I would say that those two things did more to change storytelling, each one individually, than stereo ever will. Mm at least in the current incarnation of trying to tell a narrative story with a passive audience sitting in a chair watching it. And there's very certainly uh, very little 3D uh, television for the to compete against. Right, exactly. And so for theater owners and for the studios to expect people to shell out, what, between 3 and $5 more for the stereo experience, mm-hmm. that's going to kill it more than anything because it's not different enough to justify that cost. Mm. And now I think it's more of an expression of love right? I'm a fan of Marvel. Therefore, I'm going to pay extra to see the stereo. Mm. <laughs> yeah. Now, look, I'm being very uh, bitter about a field that I've worked in quite a bit, as you can hear. Mm-hmm. But, uh, you know, I, I try and make a good stereo experience. I try and express artistic choices through stereo. But I think for the most part, it's invisible to the audience. Mm. So we'll leave that point for others to ponder. <laughs> well, uh, where can people find out more about your work? Oh, goodness. Um, Well, I had an essay that was published in a book called 3D Storytelling. Mm. So that's out there. Uh, I did at least one other interview with a a gentleman who focuses on stereo film when Oz came out. So I call this an exclusive. (laughs) Excellent. Well, thank you so much, Ed, for being on. Of course. This music and all of the other music in this episode is by friend of the podcast, Digital Drew. Find out more about his music at digitaldrew, that's D-R-O-O, dot com. If you'd like to support the podcast in your own way, there's several easy ways to do it. Support our sponsors, buy through our Amazon and iTunes links on the website. You can buy t-shirts and stickers in our web store. Or if you'd like to donate directly, you can do that too. Just find the support the podcast link in the top menu bar of the website for more details. Next up is a chat about physical effects wizard Roy Arbogast and his and others' work on Caveman. So, in this issue of Cinefix, there's also an article on Roy Arbogast and then an article on Caveman. And Roy Arbogast did some work on Caveman. We'll get to that in a second. But he's more of a mechanical physical effects guy so actually like doing stuff that has to happen on set for reals Uh, (laughs) for reals so this he started out you know doing like carpentry work essentially construction work on on sets and stuff but then moved into doing rigging which is doing uh, a mechanical effects setup so okay rigging is a mechanical effects setup and the methods involved can you tell I'm reading from the dictionary? <laughs> and then a gag is the particular effect that you're trying to pull off. So you rig a gag. I, I, I feel more enlightened already. There's, you know, crazy stuff that might happen on set, like, you know, kind of a piston that punches up from the ground and flips a car or dinosaur jaw that has to actually come and chomp somebody. I believe <laughs> that, his, his particular speciality was destruction of walls and stuff. Doing like breakaway plastic yeah. and, and rubber stuff, breakaway glass, like for uh, close encounters of the third kind. 
the glass that shatters when the uh, mothership has that really low note and the, the glass just shatters in that one booth mm-hmm. that the scientists are in. He's probably best known for building not the entire mechanism for the, the shark in Jaws, <laughs> but uh, he was the guy who created the skin for the shark. He made the mold and designed the material that the shark skin was made out of because it had to be this rubber skin that would go over this mechanical armature that actually worked on set sometimes. Sometimes. Being the <laughs> operative word. <laughs> But it had to be strong and flexible, but also had to be able to be repaired because, you know, if something went wrong with the mechanics inside, they'd have to rip it apart, fix whatever it was and do some shark surgery (laughs) and uh, put it back together. There was this particular kind of like urethane rubber that that he developed. They built a few different uh, sharks. There's a 24 foot one that they they called the sea sled. Yeah, <laughs> the shark that they would tow from another boat, drag it around. They could alter the way the fins were pointing so that it could actually have it rise or dive just like a submarine would with its fins and rudders. It also had like some neck movement to it. I didn't understand that they said they had bottles of nitrogen, I guess, mm-hmm. under pressure that they used to like drive pistons to make do the actual motion. Right. The neck moving back and forth. And they were remote controlled, but they were remote controlled how? Electrically? Underwater? I, I don't know. That's a good question. It yeah. might have been a mechanical linkage. They kind of glossed over that. If they're towing it already, you know, it might have been you're not seeing the cables because those are underwater, but the shark's head is just on the surface or something. So you can see the movement. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure they have plenty of opportunities to hide on the, whatever mechanism they choose. But it's just it's not obvious to me how they are like controlling this. But I stand in awe of you know, like <laughs> the fact that they make it at all. And then that they're actually dragging it out in the ocean, salt water with waves and everything is just oh yeah, crazy. Uh, and then they built. There was another shark that was built that was on a, like this kind of an on an arm on a platform. An arm is an understatement. It's a monster <laughs> of a thing. There's a picture of it in the Cinefx article, and it's yeah. just this ginormous underwater thing. crane of sorts. <laughs> because it's got to carry. I mean, the the shark is enormously heavy. I mean, I'm sure it really could have killed someone <laughs> if things had gone wrong. Yeah. But they, they use that one inside a tank. The platform would actually sit on the bottom of the tank and that arm would come up and be able to control the shark so it could lunge forward if they needed the shots where it's actually lunging onto the boat near the end of the movie. He did some of the, the non-shark gags in the movie, uh, like the collapsing pier that the two fishermen kind mm. of slide down and almost get bit blowing up the... Orca, the, orca. The, the ship they've been running around in, the barrel gag that pulls those big floating yellow barrels underwater underneath the boat. Um, they had to build that a track with heavy weights that would yank this thing underneath the water. That's crazy, man. <laughs> the amount of work. I'm, I feel like yeah. such a slacker in my day to day work <laughs> compared to these people. Which is, it's cool because there's like all the stuff that we now think of as like, well, visual effects, but special effects it, as a designation usually means like actual stuff that happens in front of the camera. Mm. And then visual effects are things that happen to the film or created animations or whatever after the live action happens. Oh, so it's, I did not know that distinction. Interesting. Yeah. And he came back for Jaws 2 and he worked on destroying several of the boats. <laughs> this special like flipping the catamaran. S- 
Yes, the sled that would pull the front end of the catamaran under the water and then let go so the catamaran would just dig in and flip over. They built a full-scale breakaway helicopter (laughs) with fiberglass blades that would spin and break against the water. Which sounded really scary. That's, <laughs> that's an he, interesting job description, you know. It's like you, know, you have no clue what they're going to ask you to do. Is like we want to flip this boat and like in such a way that like oh my goodness. We want this helicopter to kind of like the pontoon to be yanked underneath the water and then flip over so the blades hit the water and start breaking apart and yeah. flying everywhere. Sure, I can do that. Okay, and you want this to be with actors? <laughs> <laughs> you want me to keep people safe while i'm doing this <laughs> do you want them alive at the end of this this is just <laughs> a, a fascinating amount of stuff that he's worked on the article is an interesting retrospective of that stuff I and mean, we've we've covered close encounters a bit on the show before there there was uh some stuff that didn't make it into the movie there was these little cubes that were going to fly around the mothership after it landed to kind of like you know scope out the area before they opened the big doors so on Close Encounters, they built they built these tracks for these little cubes to fly out around where the scientists were, and they just couldn't get the the motion to to work satisfactory for everybody. So they scrapped the idea before it finally got into the film. But did a lot of work on that. Uh, he did the shaking mailboxes and train signal when Roy Neary you know stops his car at the train tracks and the, the UFO hovers above him. And also the the whole thing with all of the crap in his car flying up, like the gravity has changed somehow. They mounted the truck in a gimbal that would actually flip the truck upside down and then <laughs> flip it back right side <laughs> yeah. up again. As you do. <laughs> he worked on Dracula doing like gore effects, pumping blood into wounds and uh, made a, a mannequin with a ball joint in the neck so that Dracula could twist Renfield's neck and break his neck. Um, build Rip some out of the, the heart of Mina. Right. Build some of the bats. Uh, bats that fly on wires. Um, uh, the ones that flap. Ones that just run on horizontal wires. Hand-operated bats at the end of a pole. <laughs> biting bats that could be attached to an actor. <laughs> and uh, Frank Langella turning into a bat with bat wings kind of built into his cape and a, and a flying harness. And some fast editing. (laughs) An amazing array of stuff. He was going to work on 1941, which we talked about a bit on the podcast before. But uh, schedule delays prevented it. And instead, he worked on the incredible shrinking woman building kind of reverse miniatures, giant props (laughs) for uh, Lily Tomlin to interact with. So it looked like, you know, she's interacting with this giant frying pan. He also worked on the Fantastic Voyage, right? So... Oh, right. Yes. More more of that kind of thing. Right. With the giant uh, blood cells and uh, antibodies that attack Raquel Welch. Yes. (laughs) Very much so. And then he worked on Caveman, which uh, is what we'll talk about in a second. But he he built uh, like giant tar pits. He apparently worked on building part of this ice cave that was featured in the movie. Uh, mm-hmm. Built the fried pterodactyl egg. The pterodactyl egg, yeah, that's my favorite. <laughs> Which was like that yellow mud center inside a plastic bag so it could be punctured and look like a giant yolk. It, it works so well. <laughs> <And> <laughs> it looks so real. 
and uh, built some dinosaur parts for it too with the um because there was a lot of stop motion animation which we'll talk about in a sec but there's at one point dennis quaid is hanging on to the tail of this dinosaur swinging back and forth so they built the real life-size dinosaur tail that they could swing back and forth so before you move away from the egg part i i love the egg part like the the, this is like basically a (laughs) pterodactyl egg that gets broken and falls into a boiling pit and it gets cooked into a ginormous sunny side up egg right right and one of the cavemen actually walks into it and he falls into the yellow and makes a mess of it and it looks and it behaves (laughs) so much like you would expect a giant egg to yeah and i was was really amazed by that but i was also very disappointed because they then cut the egg and each of the cavemen like throws a piece of egg over his shoulder and walks away with it Hmm. but when they get to the to back home the egg has been replaced by this really thin piece of plastic <laughs> that is completely non-believable. <laughs> it's like, what happened to the awesome egg you had over there? You know, like, it probably fell apart. <laughs> probably, but it's it, 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 it looks so good, and then like it looks so bad by comparison. It was such a letdown. I love that they were like digging their hands into it. They were like pulling up piles of what kind of looked like just you know egg white. Yeah, <laughs> it's cooked egg white. Yeah, it, it was really good looking. Uh, Arborgas definitely knew how it makes special kinds of rubbers or whatever it is. Absolutely. I mean, Cinefax doesn't and we don't often talk about, you know, kind of that special effects side of things where it's, you know, things that actually happen on set and there's still an awful lot of stuff that has to happen on set to even, you know, even if you're going to like put visual effects on top of it later. There's a lot of cool stuff that happens on the set. Yeah, it's very it's very easy to take it for granted, for sure. But it's that egg scene is is clearly a winner in that in that regard. It's like it becomes real. It's it it, re, it really they almost wasted a whole big egg. <laughs> and in addition, like on the dinosaur parts, they built kind of this pneumatic dinosaur saddle, almost. That okay, Ringo Starr is the big star of this movie. Okay, and he is he is on top of this dinosaur saddle thing, which they built with pneumatic cylinders sticking up off of an electric golf cart chassis. Yeah. So they could have him kind of riding up high in the air um, and rocking around like he's riding a dinosaur in the middle of a desert. And then and then they put the visual effects on top of that, which is the stop motion dinosaurs. So they actually had in this one scene, it's kind of near the end when he's finally like, you know, becoming the true leader that he's supposed to become, that he's able to tame this one dinosaur and ride it. Okay, they've got a plate of and the plate is the background shot, the shot live action that they're going to add effects to later. Um, They've got a plate of just the background. It would lock down camera, right? Mm -hmm. Then they've got the same background, but with Ringo Starr sitting on top of this electronic (laughs) fake dinosaur contraption, contraption, right? Saddle. Right. So they've got, that's going to be in the top half of the frame, Ringo on top of the dinosaur that doesn't exist yet. And then the bottom half of the frame is going to be the empty frame. So you can't see the golf cart below him. And then kind of crossing uh, both of those and tying them all together is the stop motion dinosaur then with the waist and legs of a fake <laughs> miniature Ringo, Ringo star yeah. matched up with the live action torso and the rest of him 
that ties it all together, which is just astounding to me. It's it, kind of it really piecing is. all of this together. It really is incredible. And it's like until they mentioned, uh, like I watch, usually I watch the movie first just for fun before I read the articles. And I like before they mentioned that in the article, I didn't even notice what was going on there. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You, you would <laughs> never think that there's there's part real Ringo and part fake Ringo. <laughs> right. It was like, well, you know, he's got this big, like furry, uh, whatever coat that he's got on. So we'll just, you know, it'll all blend together fine. And it does. And it's, <laughs> it's yeah. pretty amazing for this kind of goofy comedy. That is obviously a complete ripoff of 1 million years BC that Ray Harryhausen worked on, but a comedy. See, I, I did not see that movie, but oh. I, I so like this one that I, I don't care. <laughs> <laughs> I love I love me caveman. So really? I had, again, I saw this. I had the, the the blessing of seeing it as a kid with no preconceived notions. Mm -hmm. So to me, this is one of the jewels of of, of comedy. <laughs> and, nice. No, I, I could I could totally understand other people might not appreciate it as much as I do, but oh my god, I love it. Well, I've, it's funny because like, well, okay, Barbara Bach, who was a Bond girl. She's the big female star in it. And by um, the way, she's also uh, Ringo Starr's wife. She wasn't yet. Ah. They met on this movie. Ooh. <laughs> that I did not <laughs> which, know. Which is funny because at the time she said that she was disappointed that Ringo got the role. <laughs> that it should have gone to some great comedian like Dudley Moore. <laughs> so, so I guess actually meeting and working with him on the movie changed her mind somewhat. <laughs> guess he is a good comedian. <laughs> <laughs> I have to say, I love Cinefix and I love the way they cover movies. This article, though, is just kind of like a little out of character for them. There's an awful lot of kind of reportage of the gossipy infighting between the animators uh, yeah and apparently uh, there was a lot of it i mean it, <laughs> yeah. it's, it almost seems like it was a miracle that the movie ever came out anyway aside from that they had some fun with the animation i think that was uh in a different vein than what like ray harryhausen was doing with his stop motion where this was a lot more goofy they gave him a lot of leeway to just be silly <laughs> right i mean kind of the t-rex comes in and rubs his hand and licks yeah. his chops at the, <laughs> the prospect of oh three cavemen you know ooh, yeah. <laughs> what i love about it is that the tone of the movie is so consistent like that it never mm. ever takes itself seriously like i don't know if you want to talk about the language of cavemen but to me that's like mm -hmm. A huge part of it right like right they, it was just like one million years bc do the same thing where it was there's no english in it it's all kind of this made-up caveman language yeah oh it's awesome so i <laughs> I, I, I have to go see one million bc oh yeah definitely this movie i showed it to my niece and nephew like nine years ago mm -hmm. when they were like nine and eleven maybe nine and ten. Oh yeah and kids nowadays you know you turn on a movie and it has that color grading that they can tell it's an old movie uh -huh. and they immediately are bored by it. Right. <laughs> it's like immediately. And this starts off and it's in the middle of a desert and it's like, oh, really? And then there's suddenly these cavemen and they're picking flowers like, oh, this is so boring. Mm -hmm. And like, no, you have to watch it. Like, can we do something else, uncle? Like, no, no, no. You're going to watch it. You're going to watch it. <laughs> and. They watch it and like within five to ten minutes, they are completely hooked. Really? And then for months afterwards, every time they saw me, 
they would like run to me hopping in one leg because that, you know, that's one of the scenes in the movie where like <laughs> two friends get reunited. My niece who's now grown up and, and plays violin in college and whatever. Mm-hmm. I had mentioned to her that I was going to be in this thing and I was going to be talking about cavemen and she was so excited <laughs> about it. She like remembers it all to this day. It's like it really works. It's a really good movie and, and it's kind of timeless. You know, I'm, I'm looking forward to like showing it to my kids who haven't seen it yet. Hmm. And it really is genuinely funny. Cheesy? Totally. <laughs> but oh, very cheesy. Funny. Very funny. <laughs> As to some of the effects, I thought it was interesting that they didn't use a lot of blue screen. It ended up saving them money. They actually did a front light and backlight high contrast traveling mat technique. So like, OK, on one, we'll call it the A frame is when you're actually shooting the character that's being animated like the pterodactyl in some of these scenes that you know it needs to fly so it's got to be blue screen or something some way of combining it with the live action of the people running away from it they used then the b frame the next frame after that they wouldn't move the character but then just backlight the frame so that you get this bright white background and then you know the character is in silhouette so they're, they're making their mat as they go. Yeah. Right. Instead of doing the blue screen where you just take the one frame, you move the character, you take the next frame. And then you take this whole process where you're extracting the blue and creating the mat. And you go through three or four different strips of film to get to your mat. Now you've just got them alternated a, B, A, B, A, B on the same strip of film. And then you can just separate them out. Now, that must be painful to like edit out, right? Like because, you know, they, what do they do? They have to cut all of the frames and like resort them in order. They would copy it. They would do a skip print to another a piece of film. So it would it would just advance two frames every time instead of advancing one frames. Yeah. OK. One frame at a time. Yeah, that makes sense. You'd end up with the, the original color footage of the character and then the high contrast black and white version of your mat. And they, they said I produced some really nice, clean mats for them. And it was it was less expensive to do than the blue screen process because it used up less film and less time. But it was more time and kind of more of a pain when you're actually doing the animation because you have to stop and do the actual character and then do the, <laughs> the mat version, uh, you know, back and forth, back and forth. The, quick, the thing that I don't understand, though, is. By doing that, they don't have a reverse mat. They just have the one mat. Well, they don't they don't need it. Or they make the reverse mat from the mat. Because they're, they're shooting the character against a black background. Oh, yes. Yes, 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 yes. Then yes. they don't need to do a separate mat for that because it's already, it's already just black. against yeah. black. Okay, yeah. yeah. They only need the mat to knock out the portion where the character is going to be inside the background plate and then they can combine the two and, and just just for the record let me state how much i admire your ability to describe verbally these really complicated <laughs> things like like last episode when you're uh, trying to describe introvision like oh, oh my man. goodness <laughs> like I did, I did not feel jealous for you <laughs> <laughs> that's like the hardest thing to describe verbally. Yeah. no we'll just go look at the diagram on yeah. the website <laughs> imagine my waving hands <laughs> Yeah, it's it's just interesting that like so much of the process went toward blue screen when some folks didn't feel it made as clean a mat mm-hmm. as like this high contrast version did. But then you can film live action on blue screen 
because there's no way you can stop the camera frame by frame. Um, <laughs> you put a strobe light and you're like, <laughs> yeah, just act twice as slow as you normally would. But there was a lot of cool stuff in there. It was like a live action character is stabbing something with a sword and then suddenly the sword is in the stop motion character and it's disappeared from the live frame. I mean, but it all looks seamless. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, They did some amazing stuff like that, especially in Jason and the Argonauts, but they, they did a similar thing here where there's a sharpened piece of log or whatever that very conveniently sharpened. (laughs) (laughs) Right. (laughs) That Ringo is like kind of lifts up and then the T-Rex I'm like, I'm making motions with my hands. That's why I'm going off mic, (laughs) but it lifts up and then, the t-rex falls down on top of it and you know he's got this piece of wood in his shoulder i always think that's cool when there's like suddenly this transition from live action to animation and you don't even notice it yeah yeah very well done and there was also one shot i think it was one of the shots where the live action golf cart contraption and him riding the dinosaur and all that so on top of all of that that's going on those like the two different background parts plus the dinosaur plus the half Ringo star <laughs> writing oh, the I dinosaur. Oh, I know where you're going. You're going to Rotunda? Yeah. The guy from like the opposing tribe for a few frames steps in front of where the dinosaur is going to be. <laughs> so they also replaced like his leg and left arm or whatever with puppet versions for a few frames. <laughs> yeah, because because he is shot in the background plate, right? Yep. When they animate the whole thing together, he is really behind the animated puppet. Right. Because it's on a screen behind where the puppet is, right? But they want him to show up in front. Mm-hmm. So they actually like just, you know, built half of him yeah. as a puppet just for a few frames. And it just, it looks seamless. Yeah, it's, I, uh, to, to be perfectly honest, I actually haven't been able to find out where it is that that happens. <laughs> it's, I went back and looked and like now that I know what I'm looking for. I could find it, but it's, yeah, you really have to do frame by frame because it's only for like, what, like eight or ten frames that it happens. But it was enough that it looked seamless. It's very cool. Yeah. Yeah. All in all, I think it was, it was a pretty fun movie. It is fun. And, and, and it's, it is amazing that such a silly comedy got such serious animation treatment to it. <laughs> it, it worked. And the fact that it was so funny allowed the animators to, you know, it gave them so much license to, to play with it. And it, it right. really comes well, when you say it's fun. When you say serious animation treatment, that just makes me laugh. Because I'm just <laughs> yeah, yeah, thinking you know, of like, you know what I meant. Like, <laughs> there's like the one monster with the horn on its head that he likes to eat, you know, pumpkins and whatever, <laughs> melons and stuff. But he's got these like, Almost like um, insane googly eyes. Yeah, (laughs) like they're all just like they're almost on like tiny little stalks so they can kind of just go in all sorts of different directions. Kind of like a chameleon is what I think is what they're (laughs) copying from. But you're right. It's not serious animation. It's professionally animated. (laughs) Yes. Yes, definitely. (laughs) But fun stuff. Yes, fun, fun. Well, thanks for joining me on this episode, Jose. It was a pleasure. Summer is coming, and that means summer movies and the next issue of Cinefix. Cinefix 138 will feature two different covers, one with Spider-Man leaping from The Amazing Spider-Man 2, and the other with Captain America's sidekick Falcon spreading his enormous metal wings from Captain America the Winter Soldier. Cinefix's Dynamite Summer issue also includes stories on two other summer hits, Godzilla and Maleficent. 
following up on Cinefix issue 7, in which publisher Don Shea wrote the definitive biography of Willis O'Brien, the animator of the original King Kong. Writer Steven Zirkus has unearthed new information about his bitter rivalry with producer Herbert M. Dawley that challenges long-held assumptions about what was at stake and who was to blame. Cinefix editor-in-chief Jody Duncan calls it the Da Vinci Code of visual effects. Pre-order the magazine this week, and not only can you pick the cover of your choice, Spider-Man or Falcon, but your issue will go out in their first mailing for a mid-June arrival. Pre-order your copy now at Cinefix.com and click on Next Issue to pre-order. And if you want to grab long out-of-print issue 7 on Willis O'Brien to read up, you can now get that back issue and many others thanks to the Cinefix Classic Collection in the Cinefix iPad app. Just search for Cinefix in the App Store or go to Cinefix.com. Thanks again to our guests this episode, Jose Vasquez and Ed Marsh, and as ever to Digital Drew for not only our show theme, but all of the music in this episode. To Mike Gower for our beautiful Aperture logo. And mostly to you for listening. Check out the blog at opticalpodcast.com and follow us on Facebook and Twitter at Optical Podcast. Thanks for listening. Hope to see you next time when we'll be talking about Dragon Slayer and Raiders of the Lost Ark. This is your host, Mark Bosco. See you next time. You mean the lasers behind Zeus's head? Yeah, lasers behind Zeus's head. <laughs> I mean, when you're a nine-year-old and you see lasers like that, it's like, oh my god! You know, like. Pew, pew.